Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in-tax legislation and in-tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. This week's topic probably comes as no surprise to you. In the wee hours of Saturday morning last week, the House approved its version of the latest COVID legislation, or as President Biden has described it, the rescue plan. President Biden has laid out the two-step process of first rescue and then recover. Well, we are now well underway on that first step. But the step is not yet complete. More intrigue in the Senate could await us because, well, that's usually how these things work. So to outline what comes next, we are joined by our friends, Jennifer Gray and Carol Coolish. Jennifer and Carol, last time we were together with this group, we talked about what we should expect from this piece of rescue legislation. And now it's taken us a few weeks to get through the various committees of jurisdiction in the House, through the Budget Committee, through the Rules Committee, and ultimately through the full House. So now that that has happened, Carol, my first question is for you. We've seen this come through the House. Did we get any last-minute surprises as the legislation went through all those various steps that I just described? Yes, John, there were some changes made in the House at the last minute. The House approved a banager's amendment, including some changes to parts of the bill that had originally been put together by Ways and Means. One of those provisions, for example, is a modification to returns relating to payments made in settlement of payment card and third-party network transactions. Basically, what that change did was substantially reduce the threshold for third-party settlement organization reporting. They reduced the threshold to $600 from $20,000. $20,000 is the current threshold. They also made some other changes around the edges to some of the credit provisions, the multiple employer pension plan provisions. Just give you another example for the child credit. Originally, they had said that there'd be advanceable payments made on a monthly basis. They changed that to periodic basis. And that's in part, I believe, an effort for them to try to address in advance a potential point of order on the center side with the reconciliation requirements. I don't know if they succeeded or not in that regard, but the House appeared to have crafted its bill with a view to trying to address at least some of the potential budget reconciliation issues that might be raised on the Senate side. Well, that's interesting. Their reporting provision, why do you think they included that at the 11th hour? I suspect it's because, again, they're doing this under the umbrella of budget reconciliation, and there's a certain target that they needed to try to hit, and they didn't actually hit that target, but they were trying to get the bill to not increase the deficit more than $1.889 trillion, which is what the budget resolution provided in the 10-year window. They actually ended up going a little bit over anyway, which they'll likely need to address on the Senate side, but I suspect that the revenue raiser was at it in part to try to address the math of the budget reconciliation requirements. But one thing that was not in there that we talked about last time we talked about the bill was the lost carryback provisions that were from the CARES Act. There was a lot of talk about potentially revisiting those and limiting or even eliminating that benefit. That was not included, correct? Yes, that's correct. It was not included. Okay. All right. So interesting. We got some last minute changes. That's pretty normal that you see these things at the last moment as they try and make all the numbers work and align all the votes that they need to get. So that's what happened in the House. It's now on its way to the Senate. So Jennifer, what happens now? Where where do we go from here now that it has been passed over to the Senate? Well, it appears that the process on this particular bill may be slightly different than what we've seen recently with reconciliation bills in that it appears that the bill is going to not go through the various committees, which we generally see with a reconciliation bill. And it appears that what they will do is take up the House bill 
There will be a Senate substitute, which will basically be the Senate inputting whatever changes they feel they need to put in. And then the process will start directly on the Senate floor. Got it. Okay. So now what? In terms of timing, how long do you think this is going to take? Are we talking days or are we talking weeks? What is it going to be? I think we're definitely discussing days here. So under their special rules for how a bill must be processed on the floor when you're dealing with a reconciliation bill, lots and lots and lots of rules. One of those is that you generally have 20 hours of debate on the bill itself that can be cut back if the various leaders of the two party decide to yield some of their time. But generally you have 20 hours of debate and then you go into what everyone on the Hill really hates to deal with, which is called a voterama. And these are situations where many, many, many amendments are generally filed, not uncommon to have hundreds of amendments filed. And then these senators have to vote on them one after the other, and it tend to go late into the night. They tend to have dozens of votes, and there is not a lot of time for the senators and their staff to really look at these amendments and see exactly every detail in them. So it's not a fun process. I think sometimes they feel that they're not legislating as well as they could otherwise because it's just moving so quickly. But that process generally goes into the wee hours. You know, my guess is we have this bill passed by the end of the week in the Senate. So to Votorama for a second, it's such a unique animal of the Senate. So you've got this exercise going on where you've got amendment after amendment after amendment. Do any of those ever really mean anything? If an amendment gets adopted, is that for show or is it something that actually is going to influence and change this specific legislation? This is real legislation here. So if an amendment passes and if it stays in the bill, yeah, it's part of the bill. So, I mean, they do actually mean something. But you also have to understand that both parties, probably in particular here, the minority party, they're really looking for an opportunity perhaps to make the other senators be on record on sometimes some pretty controversial issues. Because as the Senate moves sometimes with other bills, it can be difficult to get a vote on your amendment throughout the year. This is your chance if you're a senator. If you have an amendment and it is germane, i.e. related to the topic of the bill, you can get a vote on that amendment. Sometimes that can be difficult to do. Some folks see this as a great opportunity. So if you're into that sort of thing, when we get to Votorama, make yourself a pot of coffee, make some popcorn, get in front of C-SPAN and watch into the wee hours of the night to see (laughs) this exercise that is so unique to the Senate. It's worth watching at least once. Okay, maybe not, but I think it is. Okay, so Carol, now that we've sort of got an idea how this is going to go in the Senate, at least procedurally, you talked about the potential that the Senate would make some changes to the House bill. So just talk a little bit about that. Do we think that the Senate would make changes or why might they make changes? I'd be curious to hear how we think that might play out. I don't think it's likely that they would make massive changes to the bill because at the end of the day, if the Senate makes changes, then the House is going to have to go back and repass the bill. And Democrats really want to get this done and they want to get it done quickly. They want to get this bill enacted by middle of March, which is fast approaching. So I suspect they don't want to do anything that's really radical because at the end of the day, they want this thing to be able to pass the Senate, pass the House, and get up to the president's desk very soon. But that said, I do think we're likely to see some modest changes to the bill. And broadly speaking, I think they can fall into two big buckets. 
One bucket is things that Democratic members of Congress just want to play a role in shaping the bill. And they have some priorities and some issues that are important to them. And there are things that they may try to push in order to have the bill better reflect some of their priorities. So I do think there's some changes that are likely in that area. They could be things like better targeting some provisions. There may be issues with the amount of unemployment compensation, the length of the enhanced unemployment benefits. There could be other provisions that, frankly, we may know by the time people are listening to this podcast exactly what they are, but other changes that some particular Senate Democrats may view as improvements to the bill that better reflect their priorities and their interests. The second big bucket of potential changes are things that are needed to satisfy the budget reconciliation requirements. Because if there are successful challenges made to budget reconciliation requirements, you either have to get rid of a provision or you're not going to have the ability to pass this bill with just a majority vote rather than needing your usual 60 votes. In that bucket, there fall things like the minimum wage that's in the House bill. I think everybody's heard the Senate parliamentarian has already expressed the view that the minimum wage increase that's in the House bill does not satisfy the reconciliation requirements. So that's something that in all likelihood needs to be pulled. That also sort of over overlaps with my other bucket because there were also some of the moderate Senate Democrats who had concerns with the minimum wage increase. There are things of that nature. And at the end of the day, if they make any changes that increase the cost of the bill, they may need to make further changes to make sure the revenue targets are met. Or it may be that some of the changes that they make, like the minimum wage change, might make things less costly. It's a question, well, how do they use that money up, given that they have a certain amount of money that they can spend? But broadly speaking, I'd say that I would expect there to be some changes. But again, given how quickly this is moving, we may well know very, very soon by the time people are listening to this podcast what changes are made. But I would be surprised if there weren't some changes, at least, that were made. Any change from the House version necessitates a return to the House, right? Right. That's why I don't think there'll be extreme changes made. I think there will be some, both because of the need to satisfy the reconciliation requirements and because the Senate Democrats want to put their imprint on the bill as well. But I think that they're very cognizant of the fact that this bill has to pass the House and that they need it to move quickly. So I don't think they're likely to make massive structural changes to the bill. Right. And the one you identified that is very publicly known is this potential dropping out of the proposal around the increasing the minimum wage because the Senate parliamentarian has already suggested that that would be something that might violate the rules. So clearly, if that comes out, the bill is headed back to the House, you know, and then the House could just pick up the Senate version and be done with it, I think. Right, Jennifer? So once it goes from the Senate, then it goes to the House. How's that likely to play out? I suspect we'll see a pretty quick passage of that bill and then having it sent to President Biden for his signature. So again, I would not be surprised to see this bill law within the next week. But just to that point, though, the House knew that, for example, minimum wage provision could be problematic in the Senate. They included it anyway. Could there be another effort potentially to find another way to work around that issue in the House and try and revise it yet again for the Senate? Or you really think that they just want to get it into law and get it to the president for signature, not have to send it back to the Senate? Well, we don't know for sure, but I suspect that they do want to get this bill in place. There are some things in it that are timely, issues like unemployment benefits. And remember, our expectation is that there will be another bite at the reconciliation apple later this calendar year. So I think there are a number of issues already being discussed, both on minimum wage, perhaps ways to do something a little bit different that may meet the parliamentarians' agreement and or just other issues as well that are already being discussed and thought about and, and keyed up for that possible second bill later this calendar year. 
Aha, the second bill. We can hardly wait to turn the page to that. So talk a little bit about that. What happens then? Once the president signs it's in law, then what happens? Well, the process is similar, a bit more detailed, because as we've talked about before, the process to tee up a reconciliation bill, the first step is to pass a budget for the calendar year. And as part of that budget, it basically creates an opportunity to have a reconciliation bill thereafter. You know, what they did earlier this calendar year with the FY21 budget was really just creating a shell budget almost. So really their goal was to create this reconciliation bill. They weren't trying to actually talk about the federal budget in that they weren't setting spending goals the way a budget normally would because we're already halfway through the fiscal year. But this second bite at the apple, the second reconciliation process will be real in that as part of that, they're actually not only talking about the reconciliation bill, but also talking about the general spending levels of the federal government. So it will be a more involved process and, um, you know, will take a bit longer. I think the budget that passed to set up this reconciliation bill, I think, took maybe a week or so. I think this will be a longer process and more in depth. Ah, so another budget more Voteramas ahead of us. And then they've got to actually negotiate the underlying bill itself. Well, it's going to be something to watch for sure. Well, that's all we have time for today. This process that uh, we discussed today is going to continue to unfold in the days and perhaps weeks ahead of us. And then, of course, as we just discussed, then comes what I think of is the main attraction, the recover or the build back better plan. And that's when that process really begins. And take a second to think of how that's going to go. Imagine the current bill, you know, this one we just talked about, rescue. Imagine that is just a microcosm of this larger process in the second bill. You know, this whole dynamic of is it in or is it out? You know, the minimum wage or the no minimum wage, uh, the minimum wage tax or no minimum wage tax, the NOL carryback or not, and tax increases that weren't even on the radar, like as we've discussed, 864F or the reporting provision that seemed, I guess, arguably to materialize overnight. Just take that dynamic and multiply it many times over and spread it over not just weeks, but over months. And then we start to get an idea of what this spring, this summer, and maybe this fall are going to be like. It's definitely going to be interesting and we'll definitely be there with you along the way. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. And please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our email inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. 